Have you ever wondered who is doing the research that impacts your future? The Research Made Possible podcast lets you meet those people and learn how research at the University of Kentucky is changing what's possible in Kentucky and beyond. Here's Alicia Gregory, Director of Research Communications. Today, we meet Ilham Moussaudi. She joined the University of Kentucky College of Medicine in November 2021 as Chair of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics. In this podcast, she talks about her research on the maternal fetal immune system, which looks at the impact of obesity and includes an unexpected finding related to COVID-19. I've wanted to be a researcher since I was a little kid. (laughs) I know that sounds really corny, but it's actually true. (laughs) When I was a kid, I remember my mom bought me a series of books of famous people in the world, and it included some scientists, some politicians, activists, etc. I still remember this. I had a little box, and every, every book was one particular person, and it would tell you their life story and what they achieved and why they were considered you know, a very important person. And I was absolutely fascinated by Louis Pasteur, <laughs> and I wanted to be a Louis Pasteur when I grew up. So I had this dream that I would grow up to, to study microbes and the immune system and how to fight microbes. And that's, that's all I've ever wanted to do. <laughs> I haven't deviated from that plan. <laughs> and so I'm an immunologist and I study how the immune system develops, how it allows us to fight microbes. And then I'm also very interested in things that disrupt that good function of the immune system. I would say over the last 10 years, I've developed a really deep interest in how maternal health impacts the health of the developing fetus and the offspring later in life. So how can an immune system tolerate a really a foreign object and not only just tolerate it, but promote its growth and development? So the immune system of the mom has to undergo this massive transformation for nine months to facilitate implantation, promote the growth of a fetus protect the fetus from any microbial attacks, and then protect the mom from microbial attacks. So it has to balance not rejecting the fetus, which involves dampening of the immune response, but also not putting the mom or the fetus at jeopardy from getting an infection. And to me, that was such a fascinating question. What are the changes that take place in the maternal immune system to make this happen? The interface between mom and baby is mediated by the placenta. And the placenta is a very complex organ that also has a very large immunological component to it. So the placenta has um, two sides. It has a mom side and a baby side. And both of them actually have a very large number of immune cells that inhabit it. And that whole communication that occurs between the maternal side can influence the early events of the development of the immune system of the offspring. So our immune system starts developing as early as the first few weeks of life by making these early cells called the phagocytes, which eventually will turn into macrophages and monocytes. And you've probably heard people refer to them as the Pac-Man of the immune system. So their job is to go around and gobble up microbes and destroy them. And they are one of the first lines of defenses that we have against microbes. They get recruited very quickly to a site of infection, and they really try to 
completely stall the microbe from getting any further than that initial site. And then they release a lot of mediators and proteins that recruit the big guns, the more specialized immune cells that can specifically then control the bacterial infection or the viral infection. Fighting a microbe is very messy and causes a lot of damage, and somebody has to clean that up. And so these cells then have to churn around from being these antimicrobial like crime fighters to then being a cleaning, wound healing, repair set of cells. And those cells develop super early at a time where there's huge influence from the maternal site. And I also had a really great colleague when I started being very interested in this research, and she was a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And she and I were discussing our interests, and she brought to my attention that obesity was now becoming a huge obstetric problem. So with Almost 30% of women of childbearing age being obese, that's incredibly prevalent, has very dramatic impacts on the immune system of the mom. So I not only was interested, like I said, in the adaptations of the maternal immune system and how it can tolerate the fetus, promote its growth, but also how it's impacting the development of the next generation's immune system. And then how does obesity intersect with that? And how does it impact this very delicate balance? Does it have an impact on this delicate balance? Should we worry about this or not? So that is how I started in this field. And I started off by actually looking at the fetal side. And so we obtained cord blood samples from babies born either to mothers who started their pregnancy as lean or those who started their pregnancy with a BMI greater than 30 and would be considered obese. And when we looked at the umbilical cord blood samples, which are a very good proxy for what the fetal immune system looks like, we found that there were actually really significant large differences between the two groups. So babies who were born to mothers with obesity had fewer CD4 T-cells. Those are our helper T-cells. They're like the point guard of the immune system. They're the ones who like hand off the ball to the CD8 T-cells to kill viral infected cells, to the B-cells to make antibodies. They even instruct innate immune cells on whether to be more inflammatory or less inflammatory. So we noticed that there were fewer of them and their ability to make some of their effector molecules was changed. And so at birth, there was already the significant differences in the CD4s, but we also saw changes in the monocytes, which are the Pac-Man of the immune system, the really other very important cell type. And what we noticed is these cells, when we gave them in vitro in a cell dish, when we gave them bacterial antigens or viral antigens, they were not able to make an immune response to them. It's almost like they were stunted. And those observations that we made fit really well with clinical observation that was coming out at the same time. So from the clinical side, papers were reporting that babies born to mothers with obesity were ending up in the NICU more often, and they were contracting bacterial sepsis more often, severe bacterial sepsis, enterocolitis, which is bacterial infection of the gut. So our data fit really well with this increased susceptibility to bacterial infections and the fact that they were so severe that they were being admitted to the NICU more often. So we took a really deep dive to try and understand why the CD4 T cells and the monocytes were not functioning well. And we were able to show that the epigenetic landscape was completely different in the cells when they came out of babies who were born to mothers with obesity. And so basically, they were set up to kind of fail or not function properly from the very beginning. And so when we got those data, we thought, okay, we really need to start work working backwards now. <laughs> we need to go look at what's happening at the maternal-fetal interface. So 
Is the placenta different? Is the immune landscape of the placenta also different? What signals could potentially be coming from the maternal side to instruct or, you know, in some ways dysregulate the normal development of these cells? And so that's how we got our second project. And that's looking at the impact of pre-pregnancy obesity on the maternal immune system and the maternal fetal interface. And what we're finding is that, yes, these changes and differences that we were observing in cord blood are actually extending into the placental bed. And so what we're noticing is there's a lot more inflammation in the placenta from moms with obesity. And what we now think is happening is this heightened inflammation that is primarily driven by the metabolic changes that occur with obesity. So there's a heightened inflammatory response on the maternal side. And so to sort of protect the baby from any additional organ damage that could be induced by this inflammation, the immune cells on the baby side are quiescent. They're more calm. They don't respond as easily to these challenges that we're giving them in vitro because they've been bombarded with all this inflammation for the last eight months. And so this is their way of adapting to that and sort of dialing down the inflammation. So they are hypo-responsive. They're sluggish. So then we went back onto the maternal side and we were able to show, absolutely document that in the maternal blood circulation, there was more inflammation, that the maternal cells also had this dampened phenotype. And because the placenta is populated by a lot of cells that come out of maternal blood, it made sense. So we're having a lot of inflammatory mediators that are now coming out of the maternal blood and they circulate through the placenta and they come back out. So there's all this inflammation is being signaled through. The cells are trying to protect this very delicate interface by shutting themselves down. And they're not only shutting down the mom cells, but they're also instructing the baby cells to shut down so that they don't contribute and exacerbate this inflammatory milieu any further. So now we have a lot of other questions like, is that going to be persistent phenotype? Do these cells bounce back? How long do they bounce back? Are these children at risk of more infections later in life? And so from the clinical standpoint, we know that these kids are actually at heightened risk for more asthma and wheezing. In animal models, such as rodent models, pups born to dams that are fed a high-fat diet or are obese are at high risk for autoimmune disease later in life, and they also don't respond as well to microbial challenge but we don't know if that's also true in human babies. And so that's one of our long-term interests is to set up a long-term cohort and see how persistent these defects that we're seeing are at early life. Like, Do they persist into early childhood? Do they impact vaccine responses? Do they impact the severity of just common childhood infections? So we're continuing that project. In newly published research, Ms. Saudi found that mothers who tested positive for COVID-19 at delivery even those who had no idea they had the virus, had more activated T cells. So because of COVID and the pandemic, we stopped our work on obesity and actually shifted over to looking at how maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection impacts the immune system of the mom and the baby. We looked at mothers who had basically asymptomatic or very mild infection. So mostly moms who tested positive at delivery. And we're finding that the maternal immune system has more activated T cells. So even though it was an asymptomatic infection, the maternal T cells were activated and the maternal fetal interface has very clear signs of having sensed that there was an infection. So all the antiviral pathways are upregulated. We did, we did a lot of single cell genomics on this. Antiviral pathways were upregulated. So I think just being ready, just being protective 
And I think that's fascinating that even a mild infection that didn't even register with a patient is still being registered by the immune system. And that is rippling all the way down to the maternal fetal interface. It really sends a very strong signal that the maternal immune system is very capable of responding to infections. And so we should be promoting vaccines over and over and over again. Like there is nothing wrong with, even though this immune system is trying to protect a growing fetus and adapting to that, it is still very capable of sensing infections and responding to them. And so we should absolutely encourage vaccination and really explain that it's safe, it's, it's in par. But it also tells us that if an asymptomatic infection can have such huge changes occurring at the maternal fetal interface, I mean, we saw a lot of antiviral pathways being upregulated, but a lot of inflammation as well. So severe infection could really have some major detrimental impacts on maternal fetal health. And so again, that's another reason to get vaccinated because if, if a, an asymptomatic infection can induce such large changes, then I can only guess as to what a moderate or severe infection can do. And I always tell everyone with immunology and antimicrobial responses, there's a sweet spot. Too little of it is not great. There's a right amount. And then too much of it is just really not great at all. Uh, it, it might even be worse than too little. And so we want to make sure that we prevent that, which is so unexpected. Because I really thought oh, if it's asymptomatic, then we should see nothing at the maternal fetal interface. But no, there were actually clear signs of inflammation. Ms. Saudi is also studying how chronic alcohol consumption and aging impact the immune system. We study how chronic alcohol consumption, especially chronic heavy drinking, impacts immunity. That's a, a huge focus of my lab. We're finding that chronic heavy drinking leads to, um, again, this increased inflammation at the expense of proper antimicrobial responses. And again, that fits really well with clinical data. As we know, people who abuse alcohol are at high risk for contracting HIV infections, HIV infection. And somebody might argue, oh, that's because usually, you know, alcohol abuse goes hands in hand with IV drug use, et cetera. But we're seeing those changes even in animal models where there isn't a needle exchange. So the susceptibility to infection goes up, susceptibility to bacterial pneumonia goes dramatically up, wound healing is dramatically slowed in people with alcohol use disorder, the ability to recover from trauma is significantly delayed. So it's really important that we understand why those consequences are occurring. If somebody stops drinking, how quickly can their immune system rebound? Is there other things that we can do to to supplement or kind of encourage the immune system to sort of restore itself. So that's one project. We're also interested in how aging disrupts immunities. Older people are at a heightened risk for infection, and we're really interested in understanding what is happening with aging that makes older people more susceptible to infection. We have two diseases that are pertinent to aging. One is non-tuberculous mycobacteria pulmonary disease. These are environmental microbes. But in older people, they can cause this pulmonary disease. And the non-tuberculous mycobacterial pulmonary disease is now has exceeded mycobacterium tuberculosis incidence in the United States. And it's primarily in people over the age of 55. It's incredibly hard to treat. There's really no good antibiotic treatments for these. Only 50% of the patients might respond. And of those 50% of patients who respond to antibiotics, most of them will relapse within cessation of the antibiotics. They're very hard regimens. They have a lot of side effects. It's really disheartening. So we, we need to understand better 
why older people are susceptible to this, what what can we do and develop models for us to test better antibiotics and other treatment modalities. The other disease that we're really interested in that pertains to aging is herpes zoster or shingles. So again, we want to understand why the virus reactivates. It's caused by the chickenpox virus. And I've heard from people, well, we don't see chickenpox anymore because we have a vaccine, so we shouldn't worry about this. But again, vaccines don't lead to sterile immunity. It just leads to not having overt disease. So even if you're vaccinated, you're actually still potentially contracting varicella zoster virus. You just don't have a rash, which means that down the road, when you get older, you can still have zoster. Thankfully, there's really good vaccines against shingles right now, but it's a fascinating virus to study. And it's a virus that is acquired via respiratory route, but then hides in neurons and comes out of hiding. And so there's a lot to learn. And I think even if there's a really good vaccine for it, understanding how this virus moves around will be very helpful for both the fields of neuroscience as well as immunology and virology. Thank you for listening to the Research Made Possible podcast. To subscribe to our podcasts on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts, search University of Kentucky Research Media and click news on our site, research.uky.edu.